Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 5, 11 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair or in a pew back in front of you. Uh, and if you don't own one, take that. We believe this is God's word. We want you to have God's word for yourself. And so we're in 1 Thessalonians, which is about three quarters away through your Bible. It is after the bigger book of Romans and 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. So in July of 2009, I called Alicia's mom and dad and asked them for her hand in marriage. They clearly said yes. And then about a week later, a friend of hers and I drove down to a shop to go look at rings and purchase a ring. Fast forward a couple of weeks and on August 4, 2009, and nine, while visiting my parents, we got up early in the morning, took off, went on a hot air balloon ride, and then drove two hours to the ocean where I got down on one knee and proposed to my now wife. Seems pretty average for a Christian relationship. From that point on, I'm sure if you've walked this path, you kind of did the same things that we did. We called family, we found a venue, we found a date, we found a pastor, we began to think about food, began to think about uh, invitations, and began all of this planning and preparation for that eventual wedding day. And then once those preparations were finished, we began to prepare for what life would look like after the wedding day. Like, where are we going to live? What's our budget going to look like? What is it going to look like for us to actually be married? You know what would have been incredibly odd over those six months between our engagement and our wedding day? What would have been incredibly odd is if we never picked a date. We never picked a pastor. We never picked a location to get married. We never picked a place to live. We never sat down and thought about our budget. We never sat down to think about what our lives would look like together. And we we just did nothing whatsoever to plan for the future in light of the fact that we're now getting married, hoping that just someday in the future, those things will work out. You know else would have been odd? As if from August 4th, 2009 until February 6, 2010, keep that date in your mind if you want to know, those six months, if we would have walked around every single day with a frown on our face, just grumpy and cranky that the wedding day's coming. Would have been pretty odd, wouldn't it have? Did you know that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, There's a future wedding day coming. It's a day in which you and I will be married to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, for all of eternity. Are you ready for that day? Are you prepared for that day? Are you living today in light of that day? Are you hopeful for that day? My fear is that many of us recognize that if I believe in Jesus Christ, he changes my eternity. But we've lost complete sight of the fact that he changes my present. You see, Jesus' death and his resurrection doesn't just change my future address. It actually changes my present reality. And that's what Paul is going to show us this morning. That the reality that Jesus has come once and will someday come again, that must change our present reality today. It must change the way in which we live our life today. And so with that, let's go ahead and see how Paul unpacks that in our passage this morning. And so as we do, would you stand with me as we read 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. And we stand in honor of God and his word being spoken to us because just like me, just like the person next to you, you need God's holy word to feed your soul. So let's start in verse 13 of chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know, are fully aware, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So this summer, we have taken seven weeks to look at seven aspects of salvation. Because I want you to know what salvation is so that you can know Uh, whether or not you actually have salvation for yourself and then so that you can be able to proclaim that to others. And so this week is the final or the seventh in the series in which we are looking at salvation and we're looking at this term called glorification. The reality that at the end of time, at the end of life, we will see Jesus face to face. And when we see him face to face, our sin will be entirely removed. And we will be transformed more into his image. And we will spend all of eternity worshiping God forever. That's our destiny if you believe in Jesus Christ. And so the reality of where salvation is heading is this day where we get to be with our Savior forever. And what we want to look at today is how does that change now? August 27th, how does it change the way in which we live today? And that's this reality or this term called eternal perspective. I think for nine years I've been throwing out this idea of eternal perspective where we begin to allow eternity to shape the way in which we view today. Many of us are wearing either contacts or glasses. And if you're like me, without contacts or glasses, I could barely see the front row. 
But the moment I put my contacts in is the moment everything in this room becomes clearer. And that is the truth and the reality of what should happen the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ. That everything in the world looks different. That everything in the world is changed. That everything in the world is now viewed through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning we are going to look at this truth through this passage. And as we do, we're going to look at three different truths. So let's go ahead and look at these three truths. Okay, the first truth is the future hope. There is a future for us. And it's a hope-filled future that Paul wants to sink deep into our hearts and deep into our lives. So the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. And this church in particular is in uh, present-day Greece, Macedonia area. And as they have heard the teaching of Jesus, they have seen and heard that Jesus is going to return and yet some of their friends have died and so now they're confused and they're wondering, wait a second, if if Jesus is coming back and my friend has died, does my friend get to be with Jesus? And Paul very graciously begins to answer their question. It is a very gracious thing that when we are confused, to speak truth or to go to somebody who has the truth, to allow them to speak that truth into us, to help us to not be confused and to see clearly. That's what Paul does. He helps them to see clearly. Now notice how he does that. Look at verse 13. He begins with this idea that they are un. Informed. He says, I don't want you, we don't want you to be uninformed. There are some things in the Christian life that are just a mystery, right? There are some things in this passage that are a mystery. And yet there are some things that are clear. And when it's clear, we should speak clearly to the things that the Bible speaks clearly to. That is loving. That is gracious to speak truth. But when it's a mystery, we allow Scripture to be mysterious for us. But Paul says that there's a truth. And he wants them to not be uninformed. He wants them to know What does he want them to know? Notice he talks about those who are asleep. This is Paul's term that he uses time and again for death. Because in the grand scheme of eternity, death is just a blip on the eternal map. It's just a moment between this present life and your eternal life. Church, there is a day coming in which all of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. And at that moment, we can either declare that Jesus Christ has paid for my sin, and it's only through Jesus that I can spend eternity with God, or I have to pay for my sins. And if I have to pay for my sins, then I will be spending eternity in hell apart from God. But there's an eternity for all of us. It's either with God or without God. And so death is not forever. It's just a temporary state. But if we believe in Jesus and our friends believe in Jesus, it should change the way we actually view death. Because look at what Paul says. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed about what? About this sleep. Well, what is this sleep? So that, or that, you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We are in a weird state right now. I I feel like the last 20 or 30 years has just been utterly weird in the sense that we no longer want to grieve death. 
We no longer want to have funerals in which we reflect upon the life of a dead one and then try to get our bearings straight in regards to that death. Some of us want to just ignore that death didn't even happen. Death stinks. It is hard. But if our friend who died, our loved one who died, if they believe in Jesus Christ, the way in which we respond to death ought to be markedly different. We grieve. We sorrow. We cry. But we have hope. Because death is not the final word on their life. They are with Christ forever. And Paul shows us these, the, uh, that truth. He shows us that truth through actually three different reasons, if you will, as to why we should actually hold out hope in that uh, when a loved one who believes in Jesus dies, he shows us why we should hold out hope. And he does that by using the word for to start each of the next verses. Look at verse 14. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Did you get what Paul was saying? We have a hope. Why do we have a hope? We have a hope because we just have to look to Jesus. When death faces you, when it looks you square in the face, the attention does not need to go to the world, does not need to go to yourself. It needs to go to your Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul does, is he looks at the Savior and says, hey, what, what's true about Jesus? He died. He died for your sin. But he's no longer dead. He's alive. He conquered sin. He conquered death. And he gives eternal life. And so we can have hope beyond this life for ourselves, for our loved ones who believe in Jesus. We can have hope beyond this life because Jesus Christ died and he came back to life. We have an example of one who conquered death and now is at the right hand of the Father. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ in here this morning, I want to be utterly clear. Death is coming. Death is coming unless Jesus comes back and both of them have the same result that we will stand before God. And we will either give an account for what we've done or we will plead the blood of Jesus Christ. Because the reality is that there is a holy and a righteous God that created all things. And I don't think I have to twist your arm to help you to see that you're not holy and you're not righteous. Anyone want all their thoughts from the past 24 hours up on the screen behind me? I don't want my thoughts from the past three hours up on the screen behind me. And because of our sin, because of our rebellion against a holy and righteous God, the Bible says that the result of that is death. It is an eternal separation from the Father. And the only way to bridge that gap is the reality that not that we get to God, but rather he came down to us through Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live. We read in Matthew 5.48 that Jesus tells us that we must be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. Jesus is the only one that was perfect. And then he died the death that you and I should have died. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, and now grants eternal life to all who might believe in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, if that's not you, I want to plead with you to believe in Jesus Christ because he is your only hope to eternal life. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, 
We have this blessed hope. If your friend is a follower or was a follower of Jesus Christ, there is this blessed hope that they too and we too will rise when Christ returns. And the reason for this, Paul then goes into verse 15. He uses the word for again. He says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. God's word is true. He always keeps his promises. And now Paul is saying that the word I've already proclaimed to you is true and it will be kept. And the word I'm about to proclaim to you is true and you can rest in. So what's that word? It's a word from the Lord. That those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This truth that Jesus is coming back and yet there, are, uh, there is an order to the way in which he is coming back. So often we get so bogged down into all the details of how it's going to happen. But notice the emphasis that Paul has. It's the emphasis on Jesus returning and us going to be with Jesus. You know, in Matthew 23 to 25, Jesus begins to speak about this future return that he has, and he describes it like a thief in the night, that you don't know when it's coming. In fact, Paul's going to use that same language in a couple of verses. We don't know when it's coming, and so we have to always be vigilant. We have to always be aware and always be alert and ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Are you return? Are you ready for that return? Are you seriously uh, serious in your pursuit of Jesus Christ so that he could come back now and you're just ready for him to return? Because Paul's going to continue to call us to get serious and to get ready. And as he does that, he describes in detail a little bit more of the order of events. Look at verse 16. He uses the word for again. And he says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. There's a cry of command. There's a voice of an archangel. And there's the sound of the trumpet of God. Again, so often we, we get so bogged down by our studies of what's the sound going to be like? Or, or when is this going to happen? Or what is an archangel? And and, and when we do that, we miss the totality of what Paul's getting at. Do you hear the totality of what Paul's getting at? You're not going to miss the return of Christ. When he comes back, you will know. And that is good news. Because have you ever wondered, did I miss it? If you were a Christian in the 80s and 90s, you might remember the Left Behind movies or books or anything like that. Everybody's freaking out. Well, maybe I was the one left behind. Paul's saying, you won't have to worry or wonder. In fact, this church even worries and wonders. When we get to 2 Thessalonians, they're wondering, hey, maybe I shouldn't work anymore because the day of the Lord has already come. So what's the point? Paul says, no, no, no. You will know. It will be glorious. The entire world will know that this will happen. And then he describes what will happen to Christians. Look at verse 17. He says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Okay, so Paul is just describing this future reality that when Christ comes back, if you have died and believed in Jesus, you will rise. And if you are still here believing in Jesus, you will come together and look at what will happen. You will go to heaven. You will get a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. No. 
you will meet the Lord. You will meet King Jesus returning in glory, splendor, and power. And this is not just one of those fancy rich people meet and greets. Because look at what he says. He says, you will meet the Lord in the air. And so, we will always be with the Lord. I don't know of a greater hope, a more glorious hope than the reality that my eternity is secure because I'm going to be with the Lord always. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that is where the train ends, is with Yahweh around his throne, praising him, basking in his glory, and saying, worthy are you, worthy are you, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That is where we are heading. And Paul wants them to know You don't have to grieve without hope because that is a beautiful and that is a blessed day. And now we should think about today in light of that day. Ever watch a game that you know the outcome? I know nobody else in the room did this. But I stayed up last night past my bedtime because it was the final race of the regular season in NASCAR. And my driver needed to win And he was fourth. And I stayed up. And those last couple laps, I've never been so nervous in my entire life because I didn't know what would happen. He didn't win. But I've watched game one of the 1988 World Series with the Dodgers versus the A's, and I'm never worried. I'm never scared because I know the bottom of the ninth inning, my player stands up and hits a home run and wins the game. Do you think about the future like I watched the race last night? Scared, nervous, uncertain? Or do you think about the future and live today like I can watch the 1988 World Series and know what happens? Because I know the outcome. And it is a glorious outcome. It Actually, eternity is a better outcome than my Dodgers being world champions. It is an outcome that no one will ever conquer. That is secure forever. And Paul wants us to know that that is where we are headed. If we believe in Jesus Christ. But there's a but. And the but is this, the return of Jesus is glorious, and the return of Jesus also brings judgment. That's what Paul shows us secondly, the future hell. There's the reality that if we are not right with God, this day of glorification is not a beautiful day for you. This day when eternity is fully ushered in is not a wonderful day for you. It's actually a day of judgment. Notice how Paul describes it. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you know, like when this is going to happen? You have no need to have anything written to you. We live in an incredibly sad day. There are more blogs, books, sermons, articles, whatever you want out there trying to describe this final day, trying to describe all of the details of what might happen so that you and I can know and get all of our facts in order. And as we search the details so much, we miss the deliverer who will come. 
And Paul says, you don't need to know the details. You just need to know the deliverer. I'm not going to write to you about the details. I'm going to write to you about the one coming. So get ready for him to come. Why? Again, Paul just loves the word for. Anytime you see the word for, he's giving typically a reason or a purpose. And so look at verse 2. He gives us a, a reason why you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Again, Jesus tells us that in Matthew 23. He says that no one will know the day nor the hour, not even Jesus. So if anyone comes to you and says, I know the day and the hour, just ask, are you better than Jesus? I guess they won't really like that. But Jesus doesn't even know. I've not lived long enough, but I've lived through enough times where people have predicted the end. We're still here. So let's not focus on that. Let's focus on the truth of the end. And Paul says it's going to happen like a thief in the night. Like, what happens with a thief? Like, if you know when a thief is coming to your house, what do you do? My guess is you get a weapon and you go to town. Thieves do not post on Facebook, I'm hitting your house and then tag your name in it at 8 o'clock tonight. They don't do that. They want to surprise you so that you're not aware. Paul said Jesus is coming at a time that you are unaware. It's so unaware that even the rest of the world is completely unaware and not living in light of the fact that Jesus is returning. And if we're not careful, we get lulled asleep by the world's voices and the world's messages. Because notice their messages. Verse 3, he says, while people are saying there is peace and security. We all want peace and security, don't we? We want to feel like life is okay, like the chaos is just kind of smoothed out, that nothing's going to get us, nothing's going to, no turmoil is going to happen. We want this inner sense of peace and security, and we buy that message of the world. You know, the, the kind of message of the world that, that tells you to follow your heart. What are they saying? Tune out everybody else, and whatever you want to do, go do it, and then you'll have a peaceful life. Love how and who you want. Tune out everybody else who would ever tell you no, and follow your own desires. Isn't that a message of peace? message of security? Those are the kind of messages that come at us, and if we're not careful, we begin to buy into them. One of my fears for us as, a, as Christians is that we actually believe that the Christian life is one of peace and security. We miss the reality of what Jesus says in Matthew 16. If you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself. Ever tell yourself no? Like ever go to an ice cream store with other people and say, I'm on a diet. I'm not going to get any. That's not easy. That doesn't sound like peace and security in that moment. It sounds like a, lot, a million deaths to me. We have to deny ourselves. We have to take up our cross. We actually have to die. Then we can follow Jesus. Jesus says if we're going to follow him, we're going to be persecuted because they persecuted him. How often are we buying the lie of peace and security? And so we're not awake. We're not alert. We're not aware of the things of God. And instead we're just being lulled to sleep by the things of the world. Notice what happens as the world sings this lullaby. Look at verse 3. Then sudden destruction will come upon them 
as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul tells us three realities. He says that this destruction will come upon them. It'll come upon people who do not believe in Jesus, who are unaware of Jesus, who are not living for Jesus and are not ready. It will be a destruction. This is not a missing out of blessing. This is not a temporary trial. This is an eternal destruction that is coming. And it's sudden. No one knows. I don't think this is shocking. I've never been pregnant. But my guess, for those of you who have You didn't necessarily know the precise time when you were going to give birth. They gave you a due date. That's their guess. All of a sudden, ooh, labor pains. And Paul says that's exactly what's going to happen when Jesus returns. You might not be guaranteed the next hour. You might not be guaranteed the end of this sermon. I know some of you are happy. But you might not be guaranteed another moment. And so we have to be ready now. We have to be focused now, looking to Christ now. Because if he returns and we are not ready, we will not escape. There's no other out. There's no side exit. We will meet our Savior and we will either declare his blood or we will be judged for our sin. But if we're Christians... Paul tells us, look at verse 4, he says that we're not in darkness. So this day should not surprise us. We should not be shocked by this moment. Because this is not our future and this is not our reality. And so we should be a people who are no longer walking in darkness. How do we walk in darkness? We live as if there's no God. We make decisions without thinking or consulting God. And Paul says, don't don't walk like that. Be focused on God. Know that he's coming. Live in light of God. Know that that reality changes us. Know that, that we should now live differently why? He gives us another reason. Look at verse 5. He says, because we're, not children, because we're children of the light. We're children of the day. We're not of the night. We're not of the darkness. What happens late at night? Bad things. If we follow Jesus Christ, we should want to escape bad things. We should want to run far from sin and run close to Jesus and the ways of Jesus. And so we should be alert. We should be awake In fact, that's what he tells us. Look at verse 6. He said, then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. Let's be sober. The reality of Jesus coming is a glorious but also a fearful reality. And so we should be a people who are awake, who are alert, who are looking around. Who's Jesus? Where is he? Let me grow in him. Let me know him. And let me forsake sin and the darkness and the things of the world. Because if we're not serious about the Lord and we get caught up in the things of the world, then notice what happens. Verse 7. Those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who are, get drunk are drunk at night. We end up just like the world. We allow the world to impact us more than we are being impacted by our Savior. So our salvation is a train that runs from eternity past in what God has done in giving us salvation, and now it runs to eternity future in which we will spend eternity in the presence of God. And that last train stop between when we come to faith in Jesus and when we spend eternity with Jesus is massively important. And what Paul wants us to do is that last ride, if you will, he wants us to say, if that's your future, live like it today. Don't live like the world. Live like 
your future eternal reality portrays. Forsake sin and cling fast to Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? Well, Paul shows us, lastly, the present help. How do we live like this now? He shows us the present help. Look at verse 8. He says, since we belong to the day, let's be sober. What is sober? No longer being controlled by some sort of substance, no longer being controlled by some sort of person, no longer being controlled by some sort of message that leads you away from the way of God. Rather being utterly controlled by the Spirit of God to follow the ways of God. Let us be sober. Well, how? He tells us a couple of things that we should do. He says, having put on the breastplate of faith. Ephesians 6, Paul shows us this armor of God, and now he's showing us a brief picture of of armor that we should put on as we live in today's world, as we try to live with with eternity in our perspective and in our mindset. And as he does that, he says we, we should have this breastplate on. What does the breastplate do? It protects pretty much from your shoulders to your waist. It protects your heart. It protects all of your vital organs so that you can stay alive in the midst of battle. And he's saying you and I are in a battle. We are waging war against Satan and against the world that wants to lead us away from God. And the way in which we fight, the way in which we live now is we put on this breastplate of faith where we allow the truth of God to wrap our hearts, to wrap our vital organs. We allow the truth of God that he is coming back, that he conquered death, that he reigns and rules forever. And we allow it to trickle deep inside of us so that it blocks the flaming arrows of the enemy. So that it protects us against the enemy's tactics. And then he doesn't just talk about a defense, he also talks about an offense. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense. Well, how so? He doesn't just call it a breastplate of faith, he also calls it a breastplate of love. Now, I know my guess is your mind's going a million ways that you can define that. Well, fortunately, Paul defined it for us. If you read later, just the section before, in chapter 4, Paul describes love as the way in which we interact with one another. The way we care for one another. We bear each other's burdens. We pray for one another. We confess sin to one another. All throughout the New Testament, there are 53 different one another commands. And so one of the best ways to fight against Satan and his lies is to stop looking at myself and start looking at others and start loving them with the same audacious love that God has given to me. We get our eyes off of us and we get our eyes outward and saying, how can I love the way you have loved? Because Satan is a liar. And he wants to tell you lies. And he wants to tell your friend lies. So that the two of you have division. Because he loves division and disunity. And the way to fight against that is to love. So Paul says, put this on. But then he also talks about a helmet This hope of salvation, you put it on your head. You allow your mind to be so gripped and so protected by what? By salvation. You think about the work of Jesus Christ. Do you do that? Do you think about the work of Jesus Christ? Or is that something, you know, I thought about that 20 years ago, two years ago, two weeks ago. I don't need to think about it today. I've got other things. No, he says, today, I need that salvation today. And so I'm going to think about Jesus 
today. Why? Look at verse 9. He tells us a reason why. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for us so that whether we are awake or whether we are asleep, we might live with him. You see the beautiful truth there? It's not just that we might live through him, that we might live for him, that we might someday, no, that we would live with him now. Jesus died. He rose from the dead to remove the wrath of God so that now the Spirit of God might live in you and that you can live today in this moment by and with the power of God within you. I don't know of a greater power to live with than the power of God to lead us and guide us so that we might look to that future day. And then he calls for a response. He actually called for a response at the end of chapter 4, and he calls for a similar response here in verse 11. And in both cases, he says to encourage one another in verse 18 with these words. And now in verse 11, uh, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. 1 Corinthians 15.33 tells us bad company corrupts good character. Do you know how that happens? You hang out with somebody. They have bad character. They begin to speak life from their perspective. You begin to buy their lie. And then you begin to allow their perspective to change your perspective. And then your action is different. Their bad company corrupted your good character. Paul says the way in which we fight against that is that we encourage one another with these words. What are these words? Jesus is returning. We build one another up. How? Jesus is coming back. Is that awesome? We talk about it. Do you talk with others about the reality of Jesus coming back? Do you talk with others about what that means for your marriage, that Jesus is coming back? Do you talk with others what that means for the way in which you parent, that if Jesus is coming back, I don't care about the 50,000 activities that the world has for me. I care only about getting ready for that future day. Do you talk with others about how if Jesus comes back, how it will change your job? I don't care about a raise. I don't care about a promotion. I don't care about any of those things. I just want to do what God wants me to do. Do you talk with others about how the future reality of Jesus will change the way in which you handle your money? Man, I I don't need to spend my money frivolously. I need to leverage my money for the kingdom of God. Can you help me to figure that out? Church, that's why we're sending a church plant. Can I be the first to say it sucks losing people? But we do it because that future day is better than what we presently have. And we're living in light of that future day. And at any moment the Lord says go, we say let's go because that future day is better than today. And so we live today in light of that future day. And so we send people 
we send money and we say it's not about Sunbury City Church. It's about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords returning. And on that future day, I'm ready to hug him and rejoice in him and look back through his lens over all the things that he's done here, what he'll do in Sealands Grove, and what he'll do around the world. Are you living in light of that future day? Are your eyes focused on the reality that Jesus is better than anything else and so everything else will be read through the lens of Christ's glorious return? Or are you living through the lens of the glories of the world? And my guess is we can get together in about 20 years and make a drive up 15 and find those glories in the Lycoming dump together. We're all living for glory. Do you want yours found in a dump? Or do you want yours found in a glorious Savior that is better than the things of this world? That's the hope, that's the reality, and that's the call that Paul is having for us to now live our daily life in light of. Won't you join him in that call? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You are a glorious God. It is wonderful to know that my sin is forgiven. It's wonderful to know that I will not spend eternity in hell. It is wonderful to know that you have chosen us in Christ. It's wonderful to know that you are sanctifying us and growing us. It's wonderful to know that we can repent of sin and come to faith in you. And yet none of those things matter if the train does not end around your throne forever. And so thank you, Father. As we've just seen, Christ will return in much glory, in much splendor. And so we beg of you, help us today to live in light of that truth, to live in light of that reality. Father, we need it. So help us and empower us, we pray. In your son's precious name, amen. We're going to move into a time of silent reflection. This is an opportunity in our service to not run past what God has spoken, but allow his truth to sink into our hearts because it has eternal consequences. And so just right where you're at, we just want to give you a moment to just allow